Glendalock. Glendalock, the Glen of the Lakes, the two lakes south of Dublin. And this is a beautiful place. It is a place that for centuries, people were trained up in ministry. Monks and priests and abbots and bishops. And as you move toward the ruins of the monastic city, you have the only intact gate in Europe. There it is, and the picture, the gate at Glendalock. And this gatehouse would have been a place where they would guard and watch those who were coming and going. This would be a place where business would happen. This would be a place where perhaps judgments were put down and leaders of the city would gather. And it was built and modeled after the Old Testament cities that had gates, like this one in Jerusalem. So the idea of gates are very important. In fact, if you were to possess the gates of another city, that would mean you have conquered it. You can come and go as you want. And even this idea of Abraham getting a blessing in Genesis 22, it talks about your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. In other words, he's going to be triumphant. And do you remember perhaps the little verse that talks about the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God? Meaning that the gates are where the rulers and the strategy happen. Therefore, the kingdom of God's not going to bow down. It's not going to fail to what happens in the enemy's gates. Does that make sense? Now, this idea of a gate is important in the Bible as well. But here at Glendalock, right inside the right side of the gate is this sanctuary stone. Now, what is the sanctuary stone, you might say? It's this stone that has a, a, a cross carved into it in the Middle Ages. Now, I have highlighted with my little digital pen uh, what you see on the right side so you can see it a little bit clearer. But the idea is that if you had committed a crime, you would run into this city, and if you could get to the sanctuary stone, you would be off the hook for 90 days. On the 91st day, they could throw you out of the city and you'd be carted away. But in the midst of those 90 days, many people came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, and many became spiritual leaders amongst, and they just stayed in Glendalock in that city. And it's so interesting as we think about running to your deliverance, right? Running to find a deliverer because if you had committed a crime and you could just get to that sanctuary stone right in the gate, you would be safe. And in the same way, God's people, people have been running after a deliverer for all time. And that's part of what we're going to see today as we continue this series that we're calling the big picture, experiencing the whole story of the Bible. And from the beginning, we've been looking for a deliverer. And you see this at the very beginning of the book in Genesis. Yes. Good morning, everyone. The last week when we were starting our first section of the Bible, we saw that God's plan for deliverance is set in motion right from the get-go. We see it in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden after man has fallen into sin. Then this plan of deliverance continues with God's covenant to Abraham. And this is where he tells Abraham that through him, all peoples of the world will be blessed. And the deliverer is going to come through this one family, which we know will become the nation of Israel. 
God also uses Moses as a deliverer. He raises him up to deliver the people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. And then in the final book of the law, which we know is Deuteronomy from last week, in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses declares, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. So there's an additional promise here that one day uh, that the Lord is going to send another prophet reminiscent of the power and the mission of Moses, another deliverer. So all kinds of promises there. The people are left wondering, though, at the end of the law, when will this deliverer come? We'll see this continue to play out as we move into our next section this week, which is the history genre. So we're walking through the Bible, if you're new, just to make sure that you're all with us. And if you missed last week, you can catch it on YouTube. But we worked through the first genre, or the first five books of the Bible, which are called Torah. Yes. Little little review, you think? Yes. So we're going to dive into our our timeline here in a minute. I see they're in place. But before that, let's go over the law or also known as the Torah or even the Pentateuch. We talked about that last week. And I'll ask you some questions to see if you guys were listening. Quiz time. Okay. So first of all, what are the five books in this section? Let's say it. What we learned last week. Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Okay, we started in Genesis, and we said in the first 11 chapters are these four key events. See if you can remember these. Just say it with me. We have creation, fall, fall, flood, flood, Tower Tower of Babel. Babel. There it is. There they are. (laughs) The whole second part of Genesis is about the patriarchs or the fathers of what will become Israel. And there are three of them. So say those. Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob gets renamed Israel. It's where the nation gets the name, right? Okay, who is the key, key figure from Exodus through Deuteronomy? Moses. Good job, Moses. Let my people go. Yes, he's on our timeline. We'll see him in a minute. Um, okay, the, why do they end up in Egypt? There's a severe famine in the land. And so the Israelites go down into Egypt and there they are enslaved for over 400 years. Wah, wah. This is where Moses is on the scene. Um, he leads them out of Egypt. The Israelites receive the law, including the Ten Commandments. Through Moses, they build the tabernacle. They learn how to live with a holy God amongst them. And then they wander in the desert for 40 years because they got to the edge of that promised land that had been promised in the covenant to Abraham, and they rebelled. So they're sent on this desert wandering. So we ended the Torah last week with a main character from our timeline repeating the law to the people. That's what Deuteronomy means, that repetition of the law. He's saying this to the next generation, but then he dies. Who is that person? Moses. Moses. That's right. So that, that's not They're doing hard, well right? on the They're quiz, doing I well. think. You guys are doing good. <laughs> even for those who do, weren't even here, I think, you, I think you're acing this thing. And where are the people? I just want you to know, where are we leaving the people before we head into this next section? They're on the edge of the promised land. The edge okay, of the so land. they're not there yet, but they're waiting. They're right That's there. Right. Okay. Shall we do a timeline? Yes, we are ready for timeline. Right. Okay. Let's go. We're going to go up here and work through timeline a little bit. We've done this for a few weeks, and this is repetition so that you will get it in your mind. This is Emily, and she represents creation and the fall of mankind yes. as Adam and Eve took the fruit 
off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Replacing this at 4000 BC, Carl last week went over the controversy of dating. And so remember, if you do the exact genealogies that are listed in the Bible, you can get the 4000 BC date for the fall. And then it's just a matter if you want to, um, I don't know the word, subscribe to the young earth or the old earth theory. Yep. So the globe being there, you, depending on what you think, represents, hey, it happened sometime before the fall. So we're about 4,000 BC, and then time goes this way, and the next big piece on our timeline is Father Abraham. Abraham, you are looking stellar today. <laughs> it's a great look. It's a great look. And this is now 2100 BC, so 1900 years has gone by. We introduced these key covenants in the Bible, that there's four of them that we're going to go over. There are more than four, but for that overall story of the Bible, we're going to go after four, and that first covenant is made with Abraham, where God's promising him descendants, land, and that he's going to bless all the peoples of the earth through this one family. Then we move forward, and we get Moses, the law receiver. <laughs> These are the Ten Commandments, obviously. And this is where the second covenant happens. This is where God makes his covenant with the nation of Israel. And he's going to introduce the idea of blessing and curse, too. This is at 1440 BC. So this is as far as we got last week. So it's a little review. Now we're going to show you where we're going this week with these two individuals right here. So at the end of the law, Moses dies and God appoints Joshua to be the leader that is taking over now. So he's got a he sword. He has his sword. Very nice. Okay. This is 1400 BC. He's the one that leads the people in the conquest of the promised land. And his sister, in this case, it's not sister. It's King David here. Played by Brielle, actually. Okay. We've actually got into the center of our timeline here. So we're at 1000 BC. So if we've dated 4000, to 1,000, that's uh, 3,000 years, correct? You have 1,000 to Jesus and then 2,000 to us. So that's another 3,000. So this is why we are at the center. So if you think about it, we're pushing into the second section of the Bible and we are already halfway through our timeline, okay? So 1,000 BC, King David. So we should have these two step forward because this is the section we are going to look at today. Now, before we go any further... One of the things that was laid out in the Torah through the law was this concept of blessing and cursing. And since the Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus, we want to show you how this theme actually gets carried through the whole story. So take a look at this video from our friends at the Bible Project. The story of the Bible begins with God bringing life out of darkness, ordering our beautiful world, and then blessing all of its creatures. Hold on, blessing. That's one of those funny religious words. Yeah, right. People say a blessing over their meal or after they sneeze. Or just a general way to say that things are going well for me. But in the Bible, a blessing is more specific. The first blessing in the Bible is when God creates animals and he blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. Ah, so God's blessing is about flourishing and multiplication of life. Right. It's when God shares his life-producing ability with others. Next, God gives humans an additional blessing that sets them apart from the animals. 
Not only are we one of God's creatures that can generate new life, we've also been appointed as God's representative image to rule and oversee this whole flourishing world on God's behalf. So part of our blessing is to take care of God's blessing for all creation. And God wants us to rule while trusting in his abundance, to eat from the tree of blessing, that is, the tree of God's own eternal life. Now there is another tree to eat from. Yes, and it represents this decision to try and seize abundance and life on our own terms by our own wisdom. The humans encounter a deceptive creature who tricks them into eating from this other tree, thinking it's a shortcut to blessing. And instead of blessing, this tree brings a curse. A curse? You mean like a magic spell? No, in the Bible, the curse is when God hands people over to the consequences of seizing our own blessing on our own terms. It's a curse because instead of abundance and life, we end up with scarcity, isolation, and death. So God curses the ground, and instead of fruitfulness, there will be famine. Instead of overseeing the world, they will have to work the land until they die. Man. But God also curses that deceptive creature that fooled the humans, saying that a human will come one day to destroy it. And that human will be born into a world of scarcity, where men and women and families and tribes are all locked in violent conflict. If God's blessing is now covered with a curse, how can we flourish? Even more, how can we rule with God? Well, here the biblical story takes an interesting turn. God chooses one couple. Abraham and Sarah, and God blesses them and says they will become a huge family. Be fruitful and multiply. And there's more. God says that his blessing on Abraham and his family is for this larger purpose, so that through them, God's blessing can go out to all of the nations. So God's plan is to reverse the curse and restore the blessing by first blessing this one family. Right. And this family does experience God's blessing. Even when they journey through times of danger and scarcity, they grow into this huge nation, Israel. And God brings them to a mountain and invites them to be his representatives. Yes, God will bless Israel so that they can become a blessing to the nations. All they have to do is trust and live by God's wisdom. And they're told that this is a choice between life and death, between blessing and curse. Now keep reading because the Israelites almost never trust God for his blessing. Their story is filled with tales of deception, violent grabs for power, resulting in the ultimate curse, exile from their land and slavery to foreign nations. But Israel's prophets who lived through all of this, they still trusted in God's promise to Abraham. And they anticipated a future Israelite who would come to restore God's blessing and reverse the curse for Israel and for all the nations. When we turn to the story of Jesus, we find Israel still experiencing the curse, living as slaves to the Roman Empire. But Jesus, he so trusted in God's blessing, he claimed that it was arriving in a new way through himself. He wanted his followers to trust in God's abundance, to share and be generous. And he even taught his followers to bless people who curse them. Jesus would even reverse the curse by healing and restoring people's bodies. God's blessing is being unleashed. Jesus also confronted his fellow Israelites who were in power, and he accused them of getting in the way of God's plan to bless Israel and the nations through them. Those leaders arrest Jesus so they could have him killed. And instead of fighting back, Jesus believed that he was that chosen Israelite who would face the curse that Israel and all humanity deserves, and he would allow the curse to fall on him. Jesus dies the shameful death of a man under the curse. 
But just as God brought life and blessing out of darkness in the beginning, so here, through Jesus, God reverses death by raising Jesus. The curse is put to death so that the blessing of God's life can spread out once again. After his resurrection, Jesus blessed his followers, and he said that his presence would be with them as they learned to trust in God's blessing and share with others. And while death and the curse still have a hold on our world, followers of Jesus trust that the power of God's blessing is even stronger. It means we can live with extreme generosity, even when it seems like there's not enough. And that leads us to the conclusion of the biblical story, where every nation is enjoying the gifts of God's abundance, because in God's new world that is sustained by the life-giving power of Jesus, there is no longer any curse. The story of the Bible begins with... And that is good news. The fact that we see at the very beginning in Genesis, blessing and cursing. It moves through, and in the law, we have... Well, if you do this, you'll have blessing, and if you do this, you'll have curses. In this next section that we're talking about today in history, what we're going to find is how does it go for Israel, this chosen nation that God has created through one man, Abraham? How's it going to go? Are they going to actually experience the blessings of obedience, or are they going to suffer under the curses of disobedience? And so we have a bookshelf. And before we get to that, just want to let you know there are notes. If you want to take some notes today, you'll find those on the front and in the back. And hopefully you got some. And encourage you that throughout this series, grab a binder, start putting those into a binder and making some notes so you've got one place to keep that stuff because we're really serious about you getting to know the context of the Bible so that in January of 2023, as we, as a whole church, learn how to do inductive Bible study, we'll have the context so we do good Bible study. Yes. And then also last week, we got a helpful suggestion to add a little space before the individual books on your notes. And so that's the spot for you to write down some of the things we're going to tell you about the whole section that we're going into. And that's what we're going to do now. So with our bookshelf, we did something different this week. I don't know if you can tell. It's not all the books. These are only the books of the... Hey, good job. The Old Testament. Very good. I taught you guys that... Well, and Andrew was mentioning this before, that the Bible is not always ordered chronologically, but by genre. And I gave you a chant that very first week when we were introducing this that can help. We'll just do the one for the Old Testament. But if you see the, the genres, we have five, and this is the law, 12, which is our history, five, poetry, five, major prophets, and... And we lost our minor. And minor prophets went away. There, it's hiding. Oh. Ta da. There it is. And 12 minor prophets. So Mm. I was saying 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. If that helps you to remember those different genres. So, five different genres in the Old Testament. So, we covered the law. This is this large section we are now heading into for history. We are actually going to break this up over two weeks because there is a lot to cover. Okay. I remember things really well when I work with groups of threes, and it was fun because as we were discussing this this week, there are a lot of threes that can help you with this memory piece. So first of all, 
If you are memorizing your books of the Bible or reviewing them, we're encouraging you to do this. There is a way they can help you with this section. So <clears throat> we have a slide for those of you who can see it, but you have Joshua, Judges, and Ruth would be the first three, okay? Then the next three are all the firsts and seconds. So if you can just remember Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, but it's first and second. Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, and then the last three are Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, okay? Three, three sets of first and seconds, three last ones. Then we're going to switch it up a little bit on you if you want to know the chronology now, right? The order that the story is told. The first three and the last three do not change. However, this is what we're going to do today. If you do first and second Samuel and first Chronicles together, first and second Kings and second Chronicles together, and then the last three. And this is because this first part is going to be about the conquest and judges, this Second part, so we have four sets of three this time, is about the United Kingdom of Israel. Then the third set here is about the divided kingdom and exile. And the last three are about exile and restoration. And wouldn't you know that even in the judges, we're going to be bringing up three specific ones today. And in the United Kingdom, there are three kings that rule and reign. So lots and lots of threes. And we hope that that is helpful. So the big picture today, we're covering conquest, judges, and the United Kingdom. And the United Kingdom is not Great Britain. Yes, it's not Great Britain. <laughs> That's just a little. Yes. So let's kick it off with a quiz question, shall we? So quiz question number one. Today's Bible quiz. In which book did the Israelites conquer the promised land called Canaan? The answer is Joshua. <laughs> Joshua. That's correct. <laughs> okay, so we are going to dive in with Joshua. That was an easy question. We wanted to give you an easy one to start <laughs> off. Okay. We also have been introducing this concept uh, that it's really smart for you to know if you are a beginner intermediate or advanced with this because we don't want you to feel like a fire hose is coming at you. I got to remember everything that's being said. We also don't want you to feel distracted by writing down everything. So if you can be strategic and think of yourself at one of those levels and then write down what pertains to you. So I'm just going to give you some examples as we go through Joshua with this again. If you are a beginner, big concept of Joshua is that this is where they have the conquest of the promised land and the division of the promised land. If you walk away with that, you're golden. For those of you who are more the intermediate, we're going to encourage you to know some of these bullet points that are on this slide here, okay? So Joshua takes over after Moses' death, and he leads them into the promised land. Really cool thing happens. God miraculously parts the Jordan River, just like he had miraculously parted the Red Sea. And this is a beautiful symbol that God is saying, even though you have a new leader, you're still following me, the God who led you out of Egypt. This reassurance to the people. Then this is where the conquest of the promised land happens, starting with the battle of Jericho. We're going to pause for a second in this list, and we are going to bring some Lego pictures up because we are trying to show you where these fit. But before we do that, we were super excited that many of you participated in the Lego project. We, I think, had like 
29, 29 entries yeah. or something like that, Amazing. which was so exciting. And we wanted to do a special shout out to Chris Ballant, Sue Musselman, who's over at Children's Church, Natalie Harnish, Chris and Sue were the masterminds overseeing the project, and Natalie took all of these pictures for us. So if you were involved in this in any way, please stand up. We want yep. to. We want to see who you are and honor I know you. That means that you guys that down there. Standing. That's stand right. Up. Nice work, Amy Wadlow. Way to go. <laughs> and we know a lot of people aren't standing because they're over and the kids because we had a lot of our kids do this, but we we're just so thankful that you jumped in. And so we want to show you where these fit. And we had Karsten Ballant do an amazing creation of Jericho. This one was, I, mean, I sat there for a long time looking at all the details. He had several things going on in this scene. But of course, a couple of the big things when we think of the Battle of Jericho, that the walls came tumbling down, right? So the people marched around the city. He showed them marching. At the same time, he has the scene with Rahab going on, the scarlet thread is hanging out the window. There is a zoomed in picture of that. Uh, so he did a great job really bringing that story to life. And Rahab, if you haven't read this part of Joshua, is this prostitute who is living in Jericho and she ends up discovering these two spies, and these spies basically kind of are, I can imagine, kind of threatening her. And she says, look, no, I, we're all afraid of you. I want to follow your God. And so they say, okay, when we defeat the city, you put this red rope out, and we'll know that that's where you live, and we'll save you. And sure enough, God is so merciful, and he works through his people, and Rahab is saved. And even though Rahab doesn't have a very honorable job, she actually is part of the lineage of Jesus Christ in the genealogies in Matthew. This is the kind of merciful God that we serve that says, I can put together broken people and broken pieces. I can save those who are lost. I can put together things that seem like they're irreparable. And Rahab, well, she's just another beautiful picture of God's mercy. And that, even though she was a Canaanite, God delivered her. Yes, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Heart. Okay, so the Israelites are successful in the conquest of the promised land. They pretty much wipe out all of their enemies all of the not all, but most of the inhabitants in the land. And then the second half of the book is now dedicated to the division of the land. And so for you advanced learners, this is where I would challenge you. Pull out a map. Start studying where the tribes are in, you know, with the division of the land. And we also gave you a handout last week that went into how do the 12 sons of Jacob relate to the 12 tribes of Israel. And so you can go over that. Okay, it's time for Carl this morning because there's always something really controversial in every part of the Bible. And so Carl's Controversial Minute is all about that. So let's look at, shall we, conquest? Because this is really sticky. God is asking his people to wipe out whole people groups and it doesn't seem very fair and it doesn't seem very merciful and it doesn't seem very loving. And this is a really hard problem. So I just made this really quick bullet point list for you. Put it up there, Denise. Thank you so much. God is merciful and holy. We got to remember that. He's merciful. He wants to show mercy to all these people, and yet he also has to, well, he has to punish sin. That's who he is. And so we know those things are guiding principles that always are going to be part of this, and yet sin is reaching its full measure, if you will. Full measure, what does this mean? Well, this is from the Bible. Let's look at it in Genesis. Uh, where is it? Denise, pull it up for me, please. The next verse. There's, yes, 
Genesis 15, 16. In the fourth generation, God says, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Which means God is waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting for like 400 plus years for this sin to finally be punishable because he's so merciful. He's so long-suffering. He's so kind. And so there is a timing that seems like there is for sin that eventually the ark has to close and Noah has to float away. And that there is a timeline where things end. God punishes sin finally. Even some days Jesus is going to come back and that's going to be like a timeline where things, there's not going to be any more time. And so God is punishing these people for their sin in this way, and yet he's also protecting his people as well from all of their child sacrificed and horrible sexual practices, which we can't talk about because we have youth in here right now. And, and, and yet his mercy, we just heard it with Rahab, his mercy is so good. He even sends hornets before his people to drive certain people groups out. He's so kind. And if you really want to nerd out, Michael Heiser is your guy. And he'll talk about the fact that this is actually about the giants in the land and destroying them because they're actually only half human, part demon. But boy, that gets in some crazy stuff that we'll talk about later. I'll put the link up somewhere on a website at Neighborhood Church. Thanks for letting me share today. Thank you, Carl. You cracked me up. <laughs> I love, even back in Genesis, God is telling Abraham about this, right? That they're going to have to wait four generations, which is this 400 years that they go down into slavery. And he's being merciful to these people, hoping that they will change. But they're waiting until that time that that sin does reach full measure. So then they will enter the promised land at that time. So they are in the promised land. They've conquered it. Most of the people have been driven out. The land has been divided up. Before Joshua dies, he gives a little mini Deuteronomy of his own. Okay, so Moses had given that big speech to that generation that was going to go into the promised land. Now he is reminding those in the promised land of the covenants that have been established. The covenant with Abraham, the covenant through Moses with the nation of Israel. And he is in this, he is showing the people that God has been faithful to his end of the deal. God is a promise keeper. We were singing that today in Waymaker. He is our promise keeper. He has indeed blessed Abraham with many descendants. You have this large nation now of Israel as evidence of that. He has now, in this book we've seen, let them enter the promised land, returned them to the promised land. That's where Abraham had started, but brought them back from Egypt now into the promised land. He also reminds them, that there are blessings, we saw this in the video, that come from love and obedience to God, and there are curses of breaking the covenant. So it leaves us wondering, will the Israelites hold up their end of the covenant? And we will enter Judges to find out. That's right. <clears throat> so, judges. second book of the six that we are covering today is now Judges, and we are going to kick it off with another quiz question. So, can you name at least three of the judges? Give you a minute. Oh, I'm hearing Deborah. I'm hearing Deborah. Deborah. (laughs) Don't put up the answers yet, Denise. I'm hearing Deborah. Who else? You can shout him out. Samson. He's probably the most famous. Yeah. Gideon. Gideon. 
Deborah, yep. So Deborah, Gideon, Samson, those are kind of the ones that we expected. Who else are there? Oh, she Anybody? just went up, didn't it? Those guys. <laughs> Ehud, the left-handed swordsman. <laughs> that one's a funny story. <laughs> yes. Yep. So it was good. That's the ones we kind of predicted you would know. So thank you. You guys showed us that. Okay. So... The, okay, let me see where I'm at. Sorry. The Israelites are settled in the land, but when Joshua dies, there is no leader to take his place like there was, like he did when Moses died. Okay? He doesn't have a vice president? No. No. There was, that was, but if you think about it, they've all gone on to their tribal lands, right? But they don't end up driving out all of the land's inhabitants. So under Joshua, they had done most. They were supposed to finish the job, and they did not. And they actually began to worship the gods of the Canaanites. So we actually see this phrase repeated over and over in Judges. And it says, we're actually quoting here Judges 21, 25, but it's several places in the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay, so this is now the state of what's going on there. True to the terms of the covenant, God sends enemies to oppress his people. This is a curse for disobedience. Until they repent and, he, and they call out to him, and he responds by bringing them a deliverer. So these deliverers are the judges. Yeah, and, they're not judges that like sit with gavels with right, robes. Right. Right? They're they, like some of them sort of had that, but for the most part, no. Not and, like our modern day judges. And there's a lot of swords involved. Yes. And a lot of warfare. Yes. So if when you think of the judges, they are leaders. A lot of them are military leaders as well. But they have swords, and that's, that's really cool. That's why we have well, that's that important Joshua, to know. I guess. I guess swords you are cool. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So that's the cycles. If you could put the slide above the cycles, this is a cycle you're going to see repeated over and over in Judges for 300 years. So the time of the Judges, we had showed that um, Moses was 1440, Joshua was 1400, and David's 1000. So what's happening in that in-between time? These 300 years of the Judges. And these are the cycles. So Israel falls into sin and idolatry. They're enslaved. They cry out to the Lord, and God raises up a judge who delivers them, and Israel serves the Lord until they don't, and they fall back into sin and idolatry. And you're going to see this over and over again. There are 12 judges listed, and then many consider Samuel to be that 13th judge after that. And we mentioned today the ones we heard, that the ones for you Sunday school graduates, you probably heard about Deborah, Gideon, and Samson. But as you can see, there are many more. But because we know Samson, we actually had two Lego bills featuring Samson. And so we have pictures of Let's them. Let's look at some pictures of Legos, shall we? Uh, the we first one is time. actually by the Hardish family. You saw Natalie up here doing communion. So this is her family. Ooh. This one cracked me up when I saw this one. They are cutting off Samson's hair, right? The source of his strength. It's Delilah. It is. Delilah cutting off Samson's hair. <laughs> so we had that happen with Samson. And then, okay, are they, okay, I have a clarification for you. Is this the pillars or the gates? This is the pillars of the temple. We were wondering. Okay, 
Joab B. Manilu did this one, and he said at the end of Samson's life, he prays that, I think his hair starts to grow back a little, and he prays to God for more strength, and God gives him that final act of strength where he pushes down the pillars of the Philistines, and it crumbles and kills a bunch of people, right? So that is that what that one is showing. And we wouldn't want to actually try to act like these people, right? right? Yes. Okay, so this is a good little moment to talk about the characters in the Bible because we so quickly want to put people in categories and say, this is a good guy and this is a bad guy. And that is not always the case in the Bible. So sometimes the good guys do bad things. We often see Bible characters attempt to do what they think is right. They are doing what we were reading that verse. They're doing right in their own eyes. And God will work with that, but it doesn't mean they did the right thing. Okay, so Samson is a really clear example of this. It's really funny because from Sunday school, you think he's this great hero. If you really read his story, (laughs) you will think otherwise. The Bible shows he's an Israelite hero, but it doesn't endorse everything that he does. Just a little. Please don't act like Samson. So, in fact, at the end of Judges, we're going to see these four stories that are showing you the state of Israel, and it's it, start, it actually starts with Samson, and it's showing a fall of a man. The next story shows a fall of a family. The next, the fall of a tribe, and finally, the descent of the whole nation into bloodshed. And that verse, which we keep saying, I make sure I'm quoting it right because I kept. Messing it up yesterday. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the point of this book is there's no king in Israel. And they're trying to get you to see how Israel came to think that they needed a king. So this leads us to our third book in history, which is Ruth. While Judges shows how Israel came to need a good king, Ruth shows how a good king came to Israel. So at the end of Proverbs, in Proverbs 31, it talks about a godly woman. Perhaps you've read this before. At the end, the last two verses, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her her Give her the reward she has earned and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Here we are back at the city gates. Remember we talked about that at the very beginning. Now in the Hebrew Bible, this book, Ruth, comes right after Proverbs. As if to say that we've talked about this wise woman, we've talked about wisdom, now we're going to illustrate it with a wise woman named Ruth and a wise man, not to be confused with the story of Jesus and the Magi, named Boaz. So this story of Ruth and Boaz, I'm just going to give you a thumbnail sketch because we don't have tons of time to zoom in this morning. Let's look at this next slide. So it's the story of a man and woman of wisdom. It's the picture, I believe, of how Jesus is actually our deliverer and looking forward to him. This book is all about the mercy of God. Carl was just talking about the mercy of God and how God is so merciful to care for his people and even those who aren't his people. And Ruth, she would have been considered an enemy and yet she's accepted, loved, and delivered. She is a Moabite and the Moabites were actually put set aside and even in Deuteronomy 23 it says don't let them worship. They're forbidden to worship for 10 generations. 
And yet she marries a Jewish man from Bethlehem. And they had these, this family had fled from Bethlehem to Moab because it was a famine. And then yet her father-in-law and her husband both die. And Ruth chooses to come back or actually come for the first time to Israel, this foreign land, to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi. So the two of them go back. What does Ruth say to Naomi? It's a famous verse, Ruth 1.16. Ruth is telling him, just go back with your family and worship your gods. And Ruth replies, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And you might say, why is God excluding these people groups? I'm really glad you asked. He actually prophesies about it through Isaiah in Isaiah 56. He says, God says, foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord and serve him to love the name of the Lord and to worship him. It goes on to say, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. What is God's heart? God's heart is that none would pay perish, but all would be saved. And so those like Rahab who embrace God then are part of the family that are pulled in. And in this case, Ruth is not part of the family. She's a foreigner, and yet she comes to the land of Israel in Bethlehem. So let's talk about this man he, she meets, Boaz. It's an older relative of Naomi's husband. And a father in that culture would be a kinsman redeemer. This uh, term is from Leviticus 25. You want to do a little quiet time there. And it's a family member who would play the redeem or buy back card. And they would buy back lost things, lost people, buy back land that was lost in times of distress or poverty. And without knowing it, Ruth begins gleaning in the field that was part of the rules and the law saying, hey, let the foreigners get the edges of the field. Leave those to them. Why? Because God has a heart for those who are foreigners and those who are not, who are among us but don't look like us. And without it, without knowing it, here she is. She's gleaning in the fields and this righteous man, Boaz, who is the kinsman redeemer, is he speaks this blessing to his workers. I can imagine those of you who are business owners or managers. I'm sure you probably don't come in to your place of work and go, blessed are you who are working for me today. May God bless you richly. You pro that probably doesn't come out of your mouth, but perhaps something could come out of your mouth like that, right? And so, so, without, so this Boaz man, he protects Ruth he, protect, he provides for her and he sees her character. In the midst of it, here's what he says, kind of prophesies over her. May the Lord repay you, Ruth, for what you've done. May you richly be rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whom, whose wings you have come to take refuge. So this is his blessing. You've come under the wings of, of our Father God. Now, wings are also a term for a cloak and the edge of a cloak. If you were to grab someone and pull them into your cloak, you'd be pulling them under your wings. And so he's giving that blessing. And he continues and says this in the next verse. Oh, and then just fast forwarding. I'm trying to get through this story quickly. Um, Ruth says, wow, his job is kinsman redeemer, which means that if he buys back the land, 
my, my mother-in-law, Naomi, and I won't be destitute because if you were a widow, you were out of luck. You couldn't work. You, they were in big trouble. And so if, if he buys back the land and takes me as his wife, then all will be taken care of. And so he goes, she goes and lays down at his feet on the threshing floor. Big, long story. I think it's all above board, by the way, just for those of you who, wanna, who are going to read stuff that's weird. It's not weird. And basically, here's what happens. He wakes up and he's like, wait a second, what's going on here? Who are you? He says, it's Ruth, it's your servant. And, and so Ruth asks, he says, she says, he says, he says, who are you? In verse nine, she says, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me. In other words, like basically spread out your wings over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. What is Ruth doing? Hey, will you take me as your wife? That's a bold move, right? I don't know how many of you ladies proposed to your, uh, your future husbands, but this is what he's, she's doing, going, hey, here I am. Like, take me. I'm great. And she is great. And so what does he say? He says, next verse, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than what you've shown earlier. You haven't run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, don't be afraid. I will do all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Literally, all the people in the gate know that you have great character. All of the leaders of the city, all of the people that are making decisions, all of the business people that matter, they've all seen your character. You are, you are great. And I will do this thing for you. And he doesn't delay. He goes to the gate. Gate. Okay. In What's that? The gate. The gate. He goes to the gate in Ruth 4. He has integrity. He offers the land and Ruth to a closer kinsman redeemer who goes, nope, that's going to mess everything up. You can have her. And so then says, all right, here, to seal the deal, I'm going to hand you my sandal, as was the custom, in the, in the presence of the elders so that everyone would know this was above board and that Boaz was obtaining Ruth as his very own. This idea of a kinsman redeemer is what Jesus is for us. You see, we are so lost without him. We are foreigners and we are really not in, even allowed into God's presence. And yet Jesus, while we were sinners, while we were a long way off, demonstrated his own love for us by dying for us. And as we run to his sanctuary, even to the cross, we find forgiveness and he spreads his wings over us. His grace is enough for us. And so even in this beautiful story, this beautiful love story, and I, I encourage you to read it this week. It probably take you 10 minutes to get through all four chapters. This story shows you how this man in the midst of a really difficult time, when even the judges weren't really oftentimes serving God or doing the right thing, he does the right thing. He's a man of integrity. Are you a person of integrity doing the right thing regardless of whether you're a boss or your political leaders or anyone else that you see maybe isn't doing it right? Are you willing to do it right? Are you willing to step in and obey so that you'll get blessing? I believe this is a challenge for us, but more than that, I believe also that Jesus is saying, I am this kind of kinsman redeemer for you. And I see how far off you are in whatever area of your life, and I will draw you close, and I will fix the things that are broke, broken, 
and I will reach those who are lost. Lost. And so Boaz is a great foreshadowing of David, who's a good king, and ultimately Jesus. By the way, Boaz, Rahab's, Rahab's son. So he's the son of a prostitute. A foreigner. He has a heart for a foreign woman, her, his mother. And now that heart also comes out in loving this foreign woman. I love that. Love the picture of mercy in it. Oh, and by the way, the son that Boaz and Ruth have, Obed, is the grandfather of King David, our next person on the timeline. So it's a beautiful story worth reading this week. Back to you, Tammy, in the studio. Love it. (laughs) And then you also have Boaz, David, and Jesus from the town of Bethlehem. This is where this is set as well. Good point. Really neat that in the lineage of Jesus, both Rahab and Ruth, these foreign women, are in, they become in the lineage of Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. And what I love about this story, we've been talking a lot about this concept of these deliverers, right? That it really is going to point us to our ultimate deliverer, Jesus. But even more than just delivering us, he redeems us. This, that's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Now we're going to dive into those last three of this first part of the history section. We're going to do First and Second Samuel, and, a little, and we're also going to be tagging in First Chronicles. Remember, we moved that. That's not the, the order, but it is going to be covering the same content. So that's the chronological order. So with these, we are now moving into the time of the United Kingdom. We talked about that's not great, Britain. This is a time when the, the nation of Israel becomes really the strong kingdom. They become one nation united under one king. Eventually, later next week, we'll see them have one temple, and it's all centralized in one location, Jerusalem. Okay, so this is this really strong time in the nation's history. During this time, we see them move from being this loose association of tribes to a true kingdom. So we have a question to kick this off, a quiz question. Who were the three kings who reigned during Israel's United Kingdom? Andrew did a sermon series we looked at for several weeks. I think I did 30, 35 weeks on, on these three gentlemen. Yes, so if you were around, hopefully you know. You might remember who they are. <laughs> they the first are king is Saul. Saul. The second king is David. And the third that king is, is Solomon. Very good. They were listening. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> the times of the United Kingdom. Okay, so... Even though we've mentioned Solomon, he's not going to be on the scene till next week. We're going to cover the first two um, in these books right now. And the main, so the main characters in these three books are Samuel, Saul, and David. In 1 Samuel, we learn about the life of Samuel. Now, I already mentioned that we consider him the last judge. He is also a prophet. So Samuel is this picture. He's the bridge between the judges and then the, all these prophets that are coming. Judges pointed out why the Israelites thought they needed a king. And in these books, we also learn that they're asking for a king because they want to be like the other nations. And Samuel at first advises against it. He is not happy about that. But the Lord directs him to grant their request. So instead of the judges, for the people looking to the judges to be their deliverer, now they're going to be looking to their king to be that role of that deliverer. Samuel anoints the first king, Saul, who starts out well. But then he grows prideful and he ignores God's commands. And it so, ends so badly. Yes, it's not go well with Saul. 
God rejects Saul as the king and he instructs Samuel to anoint the second king, who is the young David at this point. And it's not too long after that uh, that he becomes famous in Israel for slaying the Philistine warrior Goliath. David flees to the wilderness because Saul starts being overcome by jealousy. He pursues him and by the end of 1 Samuel, Samuel dies and also King Saul and his sons die in battle. Mm -hmm. That's how that book closes. It's a lot of dying in the Bible, if you didn't notice. It's like a tragedy in some ways. Second Samuel, now the focus is on David. So David's crowned king at first just by his tribe. And after a brief civil war, all of the tribes decide to name him their king. And so this is, again, a full united kingdom here. And the capital gets moved to Jerusalem. So last week, we're going to stop and pull back now and look at this again. Last week, we talked about these covenants. There are several in the Bible, but we are focusing on four. And an analogy we used is if you were doing a jigsaw puzzle, these are like the four corners of the puzzle. Your anchoring points to the story. Okay, we introduced the first two last week, and I mentioned this in timeline, the timeline, the one with Abraham and then the one through Moses to the nation of Israel. And so here is the third covenant that we are going to be focusing on. This is the one that God makes with King David himself. In it, God promises to make his name great and raise up a descendant from David's line whose throne and kingdom will last forever. This is the great deliverer, the Messiah from David's line who will make right the fractured relationship with God that started in the garden. The one who was later to be called the son of David. Jesus oftentimes is called the son of David. It's referring to the fulfillment of this covenant. And Jesus is the last one, is the last of the covenants. Do you want to tell them? um, Oh, I forgot. No, it's you. Do you want to explain yeah. how uh, it Good point. ends? He gets to take so, the hard Sorry. <laughs> I was so enraptured in covenant. So we talked about Rahab being actually a part of Jesus' lineage in, as Matthew lists that genealogy, which I'm sure you study ever so closely every time you read Matthew. Then we see the name Ruth in that lineage. A third woman we see in that is Bathsheba, who oftentimes gets a bad rap, but I will preach this sermon later, although you can probably hear another one just like it online. I believe that David completely took advantage of Bathsheba. She was not a willing participant, and I have reasons to believe that, but you can ask me one-on-one why. But it's really amazing that these three women are in this genealogy and honored by the Lord. God's redemption. I love that. So it doesn't end real well for David. Now he is known oh. as a man after God's own heart because he does walk in repentance. But the, really the rest of 2 Samuel is kind of the unraveling of his family. As soon as he does that, all every bat out of a hot place just is Which reminds everywhere. us of, of that there are curses. There are consequences for our sin, even with. in the New Testament. It says, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he'll also reap. It's true. Our last book, 1 Chronicles, uh, the reason that we put it there is it's really covering uh, similar content that the 1 and 2 Samuel do. It actually launches with a huge list of genealogies that we are saying are probably your favorite. It's great. (laughs) But when you, if you were to be reading it in order, um, 
you would wonder, why am I reading this? I feel like I just read this in First and Second Samuel. And in the Hebrew Bible, known as the Tanakh, we had mentioned that different faith traditions put the books in different orders. And they actually put First and Second Chronicles at the very end of the Old Testament. And it's really there to be like a review of all the history. So it seems weird to us because of the order, but in the way that is laid out, it makes a lot of sense. The, both First uh, and Second Chronicles, they are told from a priestly perspective, and they focus on what will become the southern kingdom of Judah. We're going to see this coming next week, a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. Why do they focus on Judah? Well, that's because that's where David's line is, and that's where his dynasty is, and this is where that covenant is. They're going to focus in on that. So for next week... Stay tuned. We're going to finish up the second half of history. And with that is that final king in, of the United Kingdom, Solomon. From there, we're going to see a divided kingdom happen. And it's going to be answering that question, is Israel going to stay faithful to the covenants and walk in blessing? Or are they not and have the curses of that? Right. And as we close up here, just a couple challenges on, your, on the bottom of your notes there, a spot to review or something to focus on. You've got that. You've also got a lot of resources on our website. We'd love to point you to those, as well as a list of the kingdoms, which we'll talk a little bit more about next week, but we'll just, just show that quick slide. There's some kingdoms in the Bible there we'd love for you to learn, especially if you're intermediate or advanced. We would love for you to get those down. But at this point, I want to pray for us and close the service. I believe that God, our deliverer, wants to meet you this week. So if you'd stand, I just want to pray for you. Prayer folks, if you'd come down forward, if you've got a prayer need, we would love to pray for you this morning. Jesus, you are our deliverer. You are the son of David. You are the promised one. And so just like Boaz, I pray that you would strengthen us and help us to do the right things, to walk in your blessing, to walk in the blessing of obedience. Thank you that you are so good and you loved us first and you died for us. I pray a blessing on this church family, whether it's here in the house or on the stream, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, we'll see you next week.